What is up, Brew Theology listeners? This is Ryan Miller. Welcome back to another Brew Theology podcast. Make sure you check out the website, www.brewtheology.org. Look at the different ways in which you can partner, sponsor, donate. There's all kinds of things in which you can do, and we would love your support. So thank you for listening. If you would like to donate, go to the donate button. There's also a Patreon link in there as well where you can look at different incentives. If you want to be a one-time giver, a monthly contributor, we would greatly appreciate that. But more than anything else, we want to see these communities happening across the nation. So if you're listening right now thinking, I like theology, I think I like beer, and I like conversation, one, two, three, that's ABCs right there. We will help you. We will coach you. We will give you all that you need to get started. We will create this friendship, and you will not be disappointed. So on this episode right now, this is going to be fun, and you won't be disappointed. I get to sit down with Eric Hall. I met Eric Hall at Theology Beer Camp in Redondo Beach, California. Speaking of Theology Beer Camp, we have one coming up here in Denver. All you have to do is go to theologybeercamp.com and get your tickets right there in the great Hopalicious Mile High City. I love it here. I'm a little biased, I know, but I really think this is the best city in America. But if you think your city is also great, you know what's going to make it better? A Brew Theology chapter. So again, go to the website, email me, ryan at brewtheology.org or Janelle. If you like her better, because honestly, she's way cooler than I am anyway. Janelle at BrewTheology.org. Talk to one of us or both of us. We can conference call. No big deal. We'll set that up for you. Enjoy this episode with Eric Hall. Eric is phenomenal. Check out the book. Go to Amazon. Homebrew Christianity's Guide to God. You will love it. Peace. Welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. I am here today with Eric Hall. Eric, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read this. So if I mispronounce anything along the way, make sure you correct me. You can do that because you're superior in some ways. No, no, I, I want you to misread every bit of this, and uh, I want to be able to make fun of everyone on the back who you misread. There we go, Eric E Hall. What does the E stand for? Uh, Ephraim. Ephraim. Nice. Cool. Yeah. Your, yeah, yeah. your, your parents. They're smart. <laughs> yeah. The blessed, the blessed one. All right. So he is the Archbishop. Raymond G. Hunthausen, is that yeah, right? Hunthausen. Oh, yeah. Professor of Peace and Social Justice, teaching theology and philosophy at Carroll College in Helena, Montana, which is yep. where you reside. Yeah. And Eric's the author of The Paradox of Authenticity. We're going to get yeah. real tonight. Or are okay. we? Or are we? And uh, is a noted lecture on faith and reason. And recently wrote a book from the Homebrew Christianity Guide to God, Everything you've ever, ever needed to know about the Almighty. Everything. And can I just say, I think I'm the only one who notes myself as a lecturer on faith and reason. I think I'm the only one. You're the only it's one. It's only a noted lecture, but I'm the only one, I'm the only one who notes it. Hmm. So we're going to get to this book in a little bit, but uh, first and foremost, so you and I met, we met at Theology Beer Camp in LA. Here's a little, I'm going to do a little plug right now because I can. Mm-hmm. And that's where we met. And so if you actually do sign up for Theology Beer Camp, if you're listening right now, it's in August 18th and 19th. And then the next weekend is Oklahoma City. But we all know that Denver has better beer. So you want to come fly to Denver. It's not a fly over country state city. You come to Denver to drink beer and have a good time. Oh, man. But you and I met, uh, we met in LA at the first Theology Beer Camp a couple months ago. And this is like a perk. You get to make friends and then you get to chat online and drink beer. Yeah, it was awesome. And then you get, you get to read your new friend's books, which I read. And I actually, I read the, the last chapter again today, just to get ready. Sweet. I'm glad yeah. you did. 
I, yeah, I, 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 I love writing that chapter. You know, a lot of people that they, they do these interviews and they don't really read the whole book. <laughs> I no, did, no, I the, the last chapter that that that's where I, I'm pointing to it the whole time, and it becomes uh, the whole next book I want to write. So, and it kind of, it, it, like you sort of think it's gonna it's coming the whole time. So you, you know it's coming, but then when it comes, like the the Voltron really does sneak up on you, even though you know it's coming the whole time. We'll get to Voltron. I want to hear more about Eric in Montana because it's a glorious state and people often do fly over Montana. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and that's how we actually like it, if I'm honest. Um, we want people to fly over, maybe spend some money in Glacier and Yellowstone, then just just be good with it, knowing that it's a cool state that's there. Because that keeps my backyard totally open. Mm. I know, that's so selfish, isn't it? It is. We're one of the moocher states. We really are. We're one of the moocher states. There's a ton of federal land. Uh, we can't pay for it. So California is paying for it. And we all hate Californians. That's true. They hate themselves. I know. It's unfair. It's really unfair. <laughs> They're paying for our awesome state and we don't like them. So it, it, today's the first day of spring. Today is uh, March 20th. It's also Dairy Queen free ice cream cone day. I don't know if you knew that. I did not know. Is, is, is it actually spring there? Did you guys have a winter? We didn't in Denver. Did you? Have oh, a we did. No, we, we had a, we had the most serious winter we've had uh, in about three years here. So we we were sitting about eight inches snow for most of the winter. Oh, see, I don't think I could do that. The great thing about Denver is that you get the mountains. You can go skiing if you want to, but the city, like we get we get, we get dumped on maybe five times a year. Snow yeah. is. Occasionally, every 10 days in the winter. No, I think winter came and left and decided like spring. So spring's here. So what are you, what are you doing in Montana right now? Like what's, uh, I know, well, you, obviously I read a little bit about that on the, on the yeah. back of the book. Uh, but what, what brought you guys, your family to Montana? Well, so I, uh, I was down in Los Angeles actually for about seven years of my life. And I like to joke that's about six and a half years too many for me. Um, and I say that, knowing that I got really good friends there whom I miss like crazy, right? Uh, but still, it's, it's too big. It's too busy. We, uh, I ended up getting a visiting professorship out in Maryland. Uh, and my wife, uh, a job with it. Well, she got the job first, if I'm honest. So, And uh, then I applied for this job in Montana, which had opened up. And, um, you know, my dad is from Montana. So it was kind of just the perfect place. And, uh, you know, Jersey Shore willing. Uh, we, we got the gig. <laughs> You'll get the Jersey Shore reference later. Unless you read the book, then you get it. Then you get it. People are going to read this book, Eric. I promise they're going to do I it. Hope, I hope so. I, it, was, it was doing well before Christmas. It slowed down. Now I want to pump it back up because uh, I, I have a blast talking about it. I really want to talk with people about it, argue, let them tell me where I'm wrong. Well, with me right now, I have some sacred art, and it might be too iconic for you, but may this bless our conversation. Oh, yeah. You like that? Holy, where did you get so, that? Yeah, throughout the years, I, and if you're listening around the podcast, you can't see this, but I'm holding up a sacred heart Jesus, but it's the bomb. It's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you got full golden halo. Throughout, throughout the years, I've had family members who would give me all kinds of iconic artwork, and yeah. I'm jealous, man. That's awesome. I've gone through a Catholic phase, an Eastern Orthodox phase, a Jewish <laughs> phase. I uh, ask my friends what phase I'm at right now. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit of a mutt I take from this and that. And so you can dog me later. You know, it's a continuum. It's a continuum. <laughs> it is. I've got a really big tent. But you, Mr. Eric, you, uh, you grew up, well, you, you didn't really grow up anything, but then you, but then you became evangelical. Yep. 
And then you became Anglican Episcopal. Yep. I don't know which one. I know there's a difference, but you, which one were you? Were you Anglican or are you Episcopal? Episcopal. Okay, Episcopal. And then now you're you're Catholic. No, no, no we just went full blown Catholic, man. There it is, folks. If you better keep listening, this is a good Catholic. Some people don't, you know. I'm a, I'm a protesting Protestant. I've actually, and I'm doing atheism for Lent. So you have two jobs, goals tonight. One is to uh, you know talk about your book, and the other one is to convert me back to the side of our dear Lord. So the, you got it. I, I no worries, no worries. Uh, so tell me about your journey, and uh, just in a in a nutshell, if you will. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I mentioned my dad, but he, he passed when I was 15. That's what brought me eventually, you know, first into the church. Um, so I started hanging out with a bunch of assemblies of God people. They showed me the love that I need. And I've been basically forever, uh, grateful to them for the amount of, uh, sort of pouring out they did into me. So I've never forgotten these good folks still keep in contact with a lot of them, even though they're, you know, honestly a little weirded out by the fact that I'm now Catholic, but that's, that's okay. It's a, it's the name of the game. Um, went through a phase where I said, hold on, God doesn't like dislike us that much, right? I mean, it doesn't need to be spanking us all the time uh, for when we do something wrong. And actually, it's really funny on this one. I think it was partially my, um, so I'm, I, I started critiquing this notion of uh, God's divine wrath for us, and I didn't buy into a lot of uh, the ways that uh, evangelicals were talking about it. And the Assemblies of God, though their official theology sort of uh, falls along these lines, it was always this sort of, in this sort of notion of the spirit that also helped me sort of see through that. I was like, wait, 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 hold on. You're saying that the spirit is this awesome and Jesus is super nice and God hates us all. This just doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I just said, fine, forget it. And I became a full-blown Platonist, I would say. So I'm like one of the few people in the 20th century who actually said, yep, uh, I'm going Plato. God's good. That's good enough for me. Um, Started having a reconversion as I jumped into Christian theology and recognized that Trinitarian theology is taking a sort of Platonic theme, that God is the good and saying, but you know who defines that? Jesus H. Christ does. Uh, and I think that's exactly how you say his name too. Um, the H stands for Hootie. I like that reference. Maybe. Only want to be with you. Jesus. (laughs) Oh dude, don't get this guy started on nineties karaoke. (laughs) That's right. Um, and, uh, yeah. What, what happened after that? Uh, I, I started realizing Jesus was way cooler than the God who had been presented me and recognizing the value of Trinitarian theology. I said, hold on, I'm back. I need some tradition in my life though, but I can't really put on my Catholic speedos yet. Uh, so I, I, I slapped on a pair of, uh, Episcopalian chaps for about three years uh, loved the people in the church, thought they were beautiful people, got frustrated by, uh, you know, this sounds ironic, but I got frustrated by just how politicized that particular church was in Los Angeles. Um, and you know, that's saying something cause I understand the Catholic church goes hyper-political at points too. I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we, my wife and I, we ended up at this Catholic school. We were surrounded by awesome Catholic people. We wanted to raise our daughter in the Catholic community because they were cool. And we said, well, 
we better be able to take Eucharist uh, with with our daughter. And so it was actually a pragmatic decision that we made at first to join the church. We said, yeah, we want to have Eucharist with our daughter and we want to raise her around uh, these awesome Catholic people. But I got to say, it's taken. <laughs> I know that's strange, right? But sometimes you make these moves of the heart or you make these moves beyond what the intellect does. Uh, and uh, then the intellect catches up. That said, I've been, I'd say, intellectually Catholic for about 20 years of my life because I learned philosophy through, yeah. the, through Catholics. And so I'm so just... You feel, really, you feel like the whole time you knew this was coming. Yeah, I really did. In hindsight, yeah. I, I mean, I can honestly say it. Like, even at the points where I was most critical of the church and, you know, I, I was like, ah, but my whole family is Catholic, uh, you know, pri- prior to uh, evangelicalism and, you know, my mom not wanting to be, which I get. And now you, now you can go to, to, to weddings and you can go down forward and say, hey, mom, you know, and there it yeah, is. That's right, I yeah. Got the mom, I got the yeah. Mom, you can't, I can. <laughs> I like to point that out. I like to just, I kind of like put it up to my mouth, pretend yeah. for just a second. Ah. <laughs> so I'll, here's my confessions. I know you're not a priest, but is a, a, a Catholic confession moment. This probably <laughs> happens to you quite a bit with your Protestant friends. It does. No, I've, yeah. I've, I've become the token Catholic to the Protestant podcast. Yeah. I love it. Once you, once you like have a label, it's funny. Cause you, like you said, you've always kind of been a Catholic, but now that you have the label, it changes the whole ball game for oh, whatever no, awesome. yeah. that we love labels. So about 10, 15 years ago, my wife and I went to a wedding and it was a Catholic wedding and my other protesting Protestant buddy on the side, we look at each other and we both knew it. We had that eye of the tiger look, right? We're, you did going, it, didn't you? we're going down front. Fake it till you make it. So we did it, and my wife was a bridesmaid, and she was looking at me the whole time with these glaring eyes of, like, you're not going to go down there. Yes, I am. So because I was told that they can't not refuse you. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And so then I, I've kept that up. I'm like, well, if that's the case. So I've continued this, but I, have, uh, here's, I haven't done this in about five years now. The last time I, I faked it was five years ago. But I could tell, like, I was, in, I was in Madison, New Jersey, and it was on Ash Wednesday. And my other What's that? The priest knew, didn't he? Dude, he totally knew. I went forward with my buddy and I kind of like, I had this look on my face and he looked at me and, and I started kind of giggle. I'm like, this is so wrong on so many levels. I felt really dirty. And then I had to go somehow confess this to somebody. Else. There's all this confession that's happening. So, but that's, uh, I don't want to talk about confession tonight, but I really do feel like the confession aspect of the Catholic church, it's missing in the Protestant world. We're the accountability partners. But that's lame. It's like, did you masturbate? You know, that's about as far as, far as that goes. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, next question, please. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, uh, we're going to get juvenile. Yes, we are. We're going to continue to get juvenile. But no, I, I, here's what I like. I like the fact that you've taken um, all these teachings and these learnings and you've, you've made them accessible to the masses. And so someone like myself who's been in ministry for, gosh, like 18 years now, and when I went to seminary many years ago, and then I went to the church world, there was always this disconnect. And so for you and some others to, to write a book like this from Hobrew Christianity, Theology for the People, I can now say, hey, friends, read this. It, it's not dumbing down. It's just making all that heady stuff where you can actually read it. So I appreciate you doing this. And you do have some really great pictures of like the, gra- the grandparents' pantheon. And I kind of want to start there. And then we'll work your way to your, your mash, your hopalicious mash taking a little bit of this and that. So oh, yeah. you, start off, you start off in your book talking about how God's not a cosmic vending machine. That's right. You have these three grandparent kind of deities, the Mr. Miyagi God, 
yeah. the Jersey Shore God, Absolutely. and then the retired Oprah God. So yeah, yeah. Miyagi, classical theism, uh, Jersey Shore, you know, you've got, um, and you, you confessed you watched a season of Jersey Shore. I, I really did. And, and we started yeah. watching season two and we're like, dude, no. Yeah, it's bad. I watched one episode. And when I read that you watched the whole episode, I don't know what I thought. I judged you just a little bit. But you're I good. appreciate you're good. I accept all judgment. I appreciate that you put Jersey Shore into the book and applied it to a God. And then the Oprah one, um, you know, this transcendent deity. But I don't want to put words into your mouth. I don't want to give away too much of the book. But can you kind of just uh, talk about that pantheon and, yeah. and then how that's easily deconstructed? Because most of us have rejected some of that. But some people still hold on to these kind of ways of thinking of God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and I admit, you know, good Catholic boy that I am now, uh, I, I go I go to God through Miyagi at the end of the day, right? So that's my starting point. And then my uh, and then I have my two existential add-ons, we, we can call them, um, which are in the next chapter, Joan of Arc and uh, your hippie aunt, which we can talk about too. But yeah, basically I'm, you know, we have this concept of God in our minds that God is this cosmic vending machine and Catholics can be especially guilty of this, but everyone really is, you know, happened in uh, my evangelical days too. We think that if we just put in the right, uh, the right amount of change, usually with the right words or just, or, or we say just, just enough times in our prayer, right? Or, God, I just, uh, I just want you to be with me, Lord. I just hope that you, you know what I'm saying? Just, um, tell, my, just tell my thought life, just help my thought life. <laughs> tell my computer screen hit. Uh, um, the, we think that God's going to give us whatever, right? That God is merely up there in sort of a magical being, and we have the magic within and through the words, and we can say the spell, and God will zap us into a sweet 72 firebird, um, because that's what we all want. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Uh, and, uh, this is how we usually approach God. Um, and I think, you know, add on top of that, the image that it's a Zeus like figure who could strike us down for saying the wrong words at any given point in time. And I think you filled out your standard American picture of who God is. Um, so I, I develop five concepts of God that are historically prevalent in the West, uh, and I start off with classical theism using Mr. Miyagi as my metaphor for developing this. And for you youngins out there who don't know Mr. Miyagi is, you go do yourself a favor and watch The Karate Kid. Some of my students don't know. That's, I, I, that's awful. That's a sin. I, I agree. It needs to be confessed immediately. Um, so this guy, I, I choose Mr. Miyagi, one, because I just thought that was a funny image, if I'm honest. And uh, two, um, Mr. Miyagi is sort of defined by this imperturbability, cannot be moved, is emotionless under most circumstances until he remembers his dead wife. And then he gets uh, drunk and Daniel's son had to take care of him. That was a sweet moment. It was a sweet moment. I used that moment in my book. Oh. Um, so I, I define classical theism by way of Mr. Miyagi. Uh, and then I define what's called volunteerism. This is the type of God that emerges at the end of uh, the sort of late Middle Ages and early modernity, this is the type of God that Luther, Calvin, um, early Protestant reformers are developing and that they think is God. So if the first God is defined by intellect, this God is not but a pure will uh, who does not order the world by way of a nature say, an ordered system of events and causes, but really is causing each and everything in the world to happen as God sees fit. Um, 
And uh, so Luther is terrified of this God, understandably, looks to Christ under the cross and says, the only place that you should look for God is under the cross, because that's the only time that God doesn't seem like God's a demon. Um, and so uh, I thought, yeah, Jersey Shore, sure, that's who it is. Uh, and uh, so then you get the DS, right? They're critical of Jersey Shore folks, right? Because they go, no, 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 hold on there, buddy. I look out at the world around me. It's relatively well-ordered. Um, in fact, it's we're coming of age here. It's sort of the religion of the Enlightenment. Um, we're figuring out uh, the material, we're figuring out the constancy within materiality such that we can have these sort of scientific claims. So, I think it's better if we understand God as someone who created creation and now has not much to do with it. Just like Oprah created her major corporation and now is off getting foot massages by Stedman on a beach somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so, but if you're, if you're Rob Bell, then you have that connection and then you're set for life. Oh, man. Does he know Oprah? Oh, yeah, yeah. Rob, you've been out of the process world for a while. Let me inform you on the ways of the Rob Bell. Oh, yeah, so, please. You know, he left, he's in LA. You should have, when we were there, we should have gone to knock on his door. Oh man. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. But no, I, I would, and I would agree with everything you said. So on, on back, going back to me, so Miyagi's absolute intellect and the, yeah, the absolute will of the Jersey yeah. shore. And then lastly, so Oprah's absolute transcendence, you would say. Almost. So the big distinction between Miyagi and the other gods is that, you know, Jersey shore and uh, retired Oprah, they become beings within the realm of being, you could say. So like uh, this lamp that's beside me or the water bottle or like you and I, they're beings, right? Um, they're just super powerful beings. Right. Like uh, I think Richard Swinburne talks about God in this way. He says, just take away the body and then add a lot of power to you. And that's what God is. You could even imagine what it's like to be God. Um, which I totally disagree with. Uh, bigger, just bigger, better versions of ourselves. Just bigger, better versions of ourselves. Exactly. And you know what? What theism is saying is no, no, no. God is not actually a being among other beings. Um, God is the light of pure intellect, uh, or identity itself, or the act of existing. Uh, I actually really like the way Pope Benedict talks about the philosopher's God. He says it's the geometry of the universe. I think that's a wonderful way to express what Miyagi is. Yeah. All right. So then we move past the, the grandparents pantheon. Now we, we move to this. This is like your Eric's collaborative hop mashup of, I mean, no, not really. Cause in a way, like, cause then you've, you've dismissed some of these. So the first off you, you met, you mess with Trip Fuller, oh, totally. the editor of your book. Uh, and you call this the hippie ant of process theology, <laughs> this cosmic drum circle, which I can just picture trip in the middle of that drum circle. Oh yeah. I know. Uh, uh, so that, that's one version of your not your grandparents' pantheon. Not your grandparents' people, pantheon. People maybe reject those first three that you talked about. They go to the hippie ant if they if they go deep enough and down that rabbit hole. Maybe yep. then they go to this next Joan of Arc character. Yep. And she's like the 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 transplant, the face off. And you you had mentioned the face off of Nick that's Cage. Right, yeah. Nicholas Cage, that's back when he was doing some good stuff with John Travolta. Before John Travolta <laughs> recently just did the Cuba Gooding uh what was it? The FX show on OJ. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, He's still yeah. so bad. He needs to do, he should have stuck with Pulp Fiction, but okay. So the face, the face off of Joan of Arc, the transplant, you'll talk about that in a second, but start off with the hippie ant. Cause those who, who are listening right now are like, what are they talking about? They're just throwing out <laughs> pictures and messing yeah. with this guy named Trip Fuller. 
I just, you know, I couldn't stop thinking of the people over at uh, Claremont School of Theology when I, uh, when I was thinking about the uh, process theology. I was like, dude, this is everyone's hippie aunt. We all got a hippie aunt. Uh, or it, my mom loved this, by the I, way. I do, and, and she yeah. lives in and she lives in Oregon, Eugene, Oregon. Yeah, I get, dude, mean, totally. They all yeah. do. Yeah. They all do. Everyone's hippie aunt lives in Eugene, Oregon, or what's the town in Colorado? There's there's a hippie. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. They're one of those two. Um, so I, I was just thinking of those good folks and they are good folks, but, uh, they, they go a little far for me sometimes. And I go, you know, this is just too rich of an image to pass up. Plus I can troll my buddy trip who will definitely troll me back in the process, which he did. He did hardcore in the book. Um, yes, he did. <laughs> I love it. It's great. <laughs> so here's your hippie aunt. She, uh, you know, how, how the, uh, how process folks usually present God is that God is something like the world's soul. Um, and just as the soul is affected by the movements of the body, so too is God affected by the movements of the world. But God is calling that world to its best possibilities at all in what you would call moments of concrescence. So the world communicates with God and God begins to communicate back with that world saying, hey, why don't you become something just a little bit more awesome than what you are? Uh, and begins leading, if you will, this cosmic drum circle with hopefully the rest of creation following this God as such. And this is definitely your hippie aunt because um, she friggin' loves drum circles, especially protest drum circles. It's luring. It really is. The beat just brings you in. Um, it's, so she always plays a djembe. Is that what it's called? Oh yeah, yeah. And she's got to have her, you know, no, no socks, no shoes, no, you know, just right there, all natural. Yeah, on the concrete, she's just done it so long she yeah. can walk across the glass with her yeah. beer. And her daughter Moonstar, which is mentioned in this book, uh, she's right there with her. So yeah, that the hippie ant becomes your process god, and uh, then Joan of Arc is what you know. This is a little known concept of God that is developed in. 20th, 19th, 20th century Germany um, is a response to volunteerism in certain ways, saying yes to the radical freedom of God in volunteerism, or uh, pardon me, Jersey Shore, uh, and uh, but saying in other ways that God is still God. God is yeah, theists. You get at least one little smidge of things right. God is not a being within the world. God is rather an event that takes. Place. And their rationale is sort of like this. Um, in and through Christ, we know God. And if Christ is not fully uh, divine, then we don't know God. But we don't know Christ directly. So Christ must actually be the event that comes to us and opens us up in love. And I actually think it's a really nice idea. Uh, I agree with it about 95% of the way. I just got to tack that and your hippie ant onto Miyagi God. Because I, I, I think Miyagi God's right so far as it goes. So you don't want to you don't want to throw away Miyagi, and you don't want to throw away the hippie ant, which I appreciate. And the Joan of Arc actually makes this, and this, and this, so even the scripture I think that that you had mentioned too. I mean, talks about uh, in Philippians uh, how Christ then right becomes doesn't doesn't want to uh, achieve this this godlike self. Yep. Then the godlike self that that is proven to the world is on the cross, and we'll get to the cross in a little bit because I definitely want to talk about your ideas of the atoma in a way that's relatable. Yeah. Uh, so here you have no vending machine, you know, uh, you've thrown away Jersey Shore, you've thrown away Oprah. And so you, you would say if you were to give a, a pie chart to this, yeah. 
you want to give Miyagi how much of the pie and how much to the hippie ant and then how much to Joan of Arc? If I, I hate to do that because then, then no, it's no, like, no, I like it. I like it. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go like this. I'd actually give the whole pie chart to Miyagi, but what I would okay. do is I'd say, no one cares about Miyagi in and of Miyagi's self because right. Miyagi is the god of the philosophers. Me and like two other people today care about Miyagi. Um, and when we begin to develop categories of religiosity, there has to also be ways in which we can think through how God might relate to us. Because it, let, let me make this clear. I define religion as our relationship to the divine, right? And so if there is a relationship between us and the divine, then we need relational categories to understand. And Miyagi God provides some in and through our being, but just there's not a lot of thought put into that per se. Maybe in Aquinas you get some, God relates to individuals through universals, but we're not going to go that route because I already confuse people today with the problem of universals and I'm not, I'm tired of that. You don't want to talk about universals and particulars? No, no. not today. Not tonight. I don't think anyone needs that anymore. <laughs> yeah, you want to make this relatable. So I, we'll, get, we'll get to Jesus, who's probably the most relatable character in the whole entire book. <laughs> He's got, he, as much as we want to like these other characters, it, all, it always comes back to the Nor- Norwegian hippie. It's Big J, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, let's, let's kind of transition a bit. I want to talk about the SBNRs, and yes. then we'll get, we'll get back full circle to the cosmic drumbeat of God with a little <laughs> bit of, wax on, wax off, and a little bit of a, if I could do my best Nicolas Cage accent, I would. I know, I, I got no, I, I got no good impersonations. No. Oh, Nick Cage. God bless his soul. God bless him. Okay, we'll get back to those characters. So, SBNR, spiritual but not religious. And we hear this all the time. And, you know, I got to say that when I first started to read the opening page of this chapter, I thought to myself, I don't like this book. I don't like this guy. I've never met him. I'm glad I met you. Uh, And then I kept reading. I go, oh, I think I get where he's going with this. And I kind of started to agree. And then the, at the end of the chapter, I go, "Damn it!" It's a, a self critique. I, I know I like I like, but so so here's here's here was my beef, and here here yeah. continues to be my beef here. So it, on the Brew Theology, not just the podcast, we're a community. I mean, this this is the based in the Denver Brew Theology community. It's interfaith. It's interreligious. It's ecumenical. It's non-religious. It's non-faith oriented. And so we have a lot of people who don't they don't go to church. They may have grown up a Baptist or Catholic. We have a lot of, I grew up Catholic, or I, I grew up, you know, yeah. Assemblies of God or whatever. Totally. And so uh, most people just kind of like, they want something spiritual and they talk about spiritual things, uh, but they, they've rejected tradition. Yeah. Now, uh, you were able to uh, really, en- not just enlighten me, but hopefully will enlighten others when they read this. Ch- <laughs> I hope. Because you, you talk about bourbon tasting, you talk about being oh, yeah. barrel aged and all this. And so I, I have a quote here. This is one of my favorite quotes of the book. And it says that if we age ourselves the right amount of time, then we become the finest spirit in the world. And you, Eric, like I said, I told you on Facebook, you're a fine spirit. So how does one become a fine spirit uh, if they're spiritual but not religious? But you're saying, no, actually, you are religious and tradition does matter. Yeah. It's, it's, so like I was saying, this is, this was a self critique for me, right? I I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic. To the spiritual but not religious crowd. So I don't want it ever to be seen as an attack. I get where people are coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when I got honest with myself, I recognized that 
if we can name it, that's already that already makes it a tradition, doesn't it? it? We're already engaged with a set of categories that have been laid out before us, and we're buying into them hook, line, and sinker. And I'm not asking anyone to become Catholic or to do anything else here. Maybe re-embrace your old tradition in certain critical ways. Maybe that's what I'm asking. Um, but I am asking people to understand that we're finite beings who don't get to be merely transcendent in the sense that God is transcendent. And that it's actually okay to be a part of tradition because it gives us a beautiful set of bifocals through which to see all of uh, the world. And and if we take that bourbon analogy, because this was this was the funnest chapter, and I did drink bourbon like the whole time I was writing this chapter. Uh, it was, this is one of my favorite chapters. <laughs> um, the You know, my, my point here is, look, think of yourself as a bourbon. Um, and let's let's start thinking of tradition as a bourbon barrel. Uh, when you sit in the bourbon barrel too long, you actually become astringent, right? You become a bitter bourbon. Uh, and I equate that with uh, the traditionalist. Someone who lives for the rules, makes pe- other people live for the rules, uh, and uh, tries to subject everyone to that sort of life. And th- th- that's not fun for anyone, especially a dog. No one, no dogs like people who love rules that much. <laughs> right? I was just going off the cuff there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or why not? <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand and this is where i i get a little bit uh critical of the spiritual but not religious side of things myself included mind you uh if you sit in the bourbon barrel too little you got like no flavor um and no one's going to want to taste the uh taste the mash that's coming out of the the barrel because it it just doesn't have the sugars and the and the beauty of the oak that is uh come out in a well-aged bourbon. So what I want what I would love to see people and what I'm trying to do I'm actually very Confucius on this point. Confucius converted me. He made me a better Catholic in this way. Mm-hmm. Um he's he says become a spontaneous representation of your tradition so you become so imbued by tradition that you're no longer bound by the rules but you are the living sort of uh uh, what would you say proponent you're the living member of it and you're it's almost like you're in a jazz quartet um everyone's practiced all their lines everyone's practiced all the licks before they've gone over a thousand scales in these sort of programmatic ways in other words they practice tradition but when it comes to the jazz combo and you start jamming what you do is yes you depend on tradition but you also become a spontaneous sort of mode of expressing that tradition anew and that i think is what we should aspire to become and i think that's a beautiful idea and really the question I end with then has something to do with that. Cause I ask, is God then traditional, but not religious? And I say, even there, we have to claim that in some ways that God is transcendent or cannot simply be reduced to what we want God to be. Um, but to even say that is already a part of a tradition. So you know what? There's no freaking way out of this. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So what do, what do you do? Like practically speaking, when you have people who, let's say they did grow up Catholic or they grew up Baptist and they had, something obviously traumatic that happened. And often it's a story. People say, Oh, I, I hate the church. And often it's somebody in the church that did something to them. Uh, Every now and then it could be some intellectual uh, 
dilemma and, and it was never answered or they were told they were, they were never allowed to ask questions. And yeah. you know, what I appreciate, I think in the Catholic church, from what I understand is that you actually are able to ask lots of questions in the healthy ones. I, I think so. It depends, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, I argue for that vision. Uh, of the I would, I would say growing up, you know, in our tradition, we weren't really allowed to ask many questions in a lot of the conservative Southern evangelical cultures. And so, but regardless of somebody grew up Catholic or they grew up Baptist or they grew up, some of our people were ex are they're ex uh, Mormon, yeah. uh, was witness, mm-hmm. and rarely will we have somebody who shows up that didn't grow up anything. But right now, a lot of these people are sitting there in the pub every week, and I'm sure people across the nation sit at, sit at pubs every week or coffee shops if they can't drink. Yep. And uh, man, they've got they just got they have a lot of substance in their heart, but they have where do, where do they go? What should they do? know if i have a prescription for them right i yeah. mean that's, that's tough in some ways you got to make the tradition your own despite what the tradition claims to be right you got to get over the traditionalist side of things and and see the tradition for what it could be uh, you, you know that's oftentimes like i i actually look this is going to come off on as heresy on two sides but i think i'm being a very good catholic in this I reject two visions of Catholicism, for instance, and and this means that I reject ninety percent of people. Uh, well, that's a bit that's pushing it. Um, let me tell you the two visions I reject. I reject the juridical vision of Catholicism, like I said, the traditionalist, where the person has to serve the rules. I also reject the what I would call pure social justice Catholicism that merely makes theology a, if you will, an instrument to getting to the progressive politics that one already wants to get to. Doesn't mean that that's wrong to get to those. It's just if theology is merely an instrument for you to justify what you already want to think, then you're probably doing theology wrong. Um, so what I embrace is what I'd call a sacramental view of Catholicity, which says, look, I take incarnation seriously and taking incarnation seriously. I take Eucharist and bodily life seriously. Uh, and so on the one hand, I can, the rules can foster good community when we don't make people subservient to them. They can rather help people become good people of the Eucharist. And the Eucharist as an expression of the bodiliness of Christ should frankly lead to social justice of some sort. And it should be the consequence of uh, taking seriously one's Eucharistic commitments. Um, The reason I say that is uh, I, I think you got to approach any tradition in this sort of light. What's the actual sort of tradition stand for? Where does it find its head? And how are people in some ways either falling to the one side or the other? And how how are you going to define yourself despite those people uh, doing so? And how, frankly, will you welcome them in as well? I think that's important. Yeah, welcoming. Yeah, the, the hospitality part is key. You know, as somebody who has, has been a, was a pastor for many years up until recently, in, in the you know local church, where we'd always tell people like hospitality is where it's at. So if any tradition is just, and I don't mean like opening the doors and being weird when no. people come in, because that no. that part pushes people away. Yes. But hey, hey uh, eventually, like we're authentic enough where you can come into our lives and see how messy it is, but see how the, it's. It's almost like, you know, when, uh, if I were to show you this bedroom right now, which it is a disaster. You know? <laughs> Good kids. Oh yeah. And Eric knows it. So Eric's got a four month old. I have a five month old at, at this yeah. moment. <laughs> so yeah. life's a bit crazy, 
but uh, the the idea of bringing somebody into your home like this, like there, that's there's a trust element there. Yep. You know? yep. And so if we treated theology and faith and uh, bringing that in full circle to community, I really do feel like the church, the church as a whole, and not just maybe in whatever tradition that's, that yep. you're listening right now, if you come from a Buddhist tradition, uh, hospitality is, uh, man, that that's ultimately where it's at. And and we just don't do that well in America. We don't do that well in the West. No, hospitality is so terribly important. I've, uh, you know why hospitality, sorry, we're going to get off on a tangent here because I have obsessed about hospitality for a number of years. Um, here's why I like hospitality. It is a critique in certain ways of both leftist thought and conservative thought. Let me, let me tell you why. And I, anything that can, that can critique all politics in one fell swoop, I go, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so here's, here's why hospitality is just this damn cool. When you're being hospitable, what you're saying is that you're treating the stranger like someone who is a part of the family. And as you said, you're welcoming them into your home, giving them your resources, and treating them, again, like you would your son or daughter. That's cool because I think in some time, you know, on the conservative side, we... There's a, I would say we, not necessarily, uh, there's this overemphasis on finitude. Um, and people get so bound up with like, who is their family and who do they have to relate to? And what are my natural cares that they forget that there's a whole host of people that they can potentially care for in the world. And indeed through the gospel that we're called to care for. And yet on the other side, on the, on the sort of liberal side of things, I think there's this emphasis on infinitude and a false belief that we can actually care for everyone. So we get up in arms about the things that are happening halfway across the world, which we should be. But the problem is we don't actually care because we won't actually do anything about it. And in fact, we can't because we only have finite resources and abilities. What hospitality does is critique both sides of these things and say, look, you are finite. You only have so many resources. You can only do so much with your life and you can't care for everyone. Yet on the other hand, as soon as someone shows up, the stranger shows up, the widow, the orphan shows up, you are indeed bound to care for them like you are to, like they're your family. So there's this uh, ethic of hospitality that if we could embrace it, I think we would embrace the best of who we are and what the church could be. So I'm glad you're focused on hospitality, man. I think it's awesome. Yeah. And if people can see the real you and uh, hey, at at least you're honest at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can edit any of that out that you want. Don't don't feel bad. I just no. I, I like that. I think, I think that's good. I think it's. A, it's I, I personally like. You're a Catholic. I'm a Protestant, but we're both Christ people, Jesus oh. guys. And I think that the, the Jesus that we aim to follow and pursue in a messy way was probably the most hospitable guy on the planet. I mean, there may have been others. I don't know. But let's end with talking about the Jesus Christos. Yes, Jesus. let's do it. H Christ. <laughs> so the, this this rabbi, uh, he wasn't a Nor- a Norwegian hippie. No, can you believe it? No. Why, well, tell me about this. I don't know. I don't know if I believe it yet or not either. <laughs> All the pictures I've seen of Jesus have him with just some sweet blonde locks, uh, blue eyes, and he's pretty lanky. He's pretty lanky, if you're honest. Now yeah. I, I love this image. Um, this was helpful when I started teaching theology one on ones. I wanted to find some way to shock and awe my students into getting over the vision and the interpretation of Jesus they had. And I always took one of two routes, right? Again, it's a, it, this seems to be the way of the church. Either you got to go progressive or you got to go conservative without the middle point, right? So they would either say, 
Well, all Jesus means is being nice to everyone. So I can be nice to everyone without the divinity of Christ. And then the conservatives would say, well, no, all it means is let go and let God, right? So I should know God's will for my life in each and every instance and let that uh, rule my day. Uh, and I go, yeah, guys, gals too. Uh, maybe we can rethink our whole approach to Christology here. One, maybe you're not as important as you think you are. God loves you. But maybe what you think isn't that important. So let's let's get over ourselves and let's actually attend to some of the historical uh, ideas that emerge with Jesus. And what emerges? You get a first century, you know, quasi homeless uh, rabbi who is, I think, teaching a thoroughly radical uh, Jewish uh, sense of what creation is, what it's supposed to be, and he draws out uh, the prophetic elements uh, with, a, with a sense of wonder that I, I've just never been able to leave. So um, what am I saying here? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying Jesus brings it all the way back, baby. He brings it back to the creation narratives. And in fact, what you see in, in through the whole of Jesus's life is that he is trying to, in some ways, recreate the garden that we had left, the garden that we willingly left or that we were booted out of due to, uh, due to our sin and our buying into a sort of primordial violence and chaos that began to emerge in and through creation. By the way, Jesus is my answer to the problem of evil. Uh, just, to, just to put that plug in there, I don't think philosophical answers cut it. A theodicy, a theodicy side note. There it is. Yeah, there you right. go. There you go. E- email Eric later, and then he'll elaborate. Or buy my book. Buy, buy my book, and I'll <laughs> elaborate in there. Big J is the answer to the problem, people. Um, yeah, you, yeah, because you, you do talk about, so um, from, from the garden on and this continual progressive story throughout the Hebrew scriptures on through the New Testament, uh, violence, uh, the, whether, whether, you know, we don't, we don't really talk, we're not going to get into, uh, the origin of violence. That's not really the issue here, but where is God in the violence? Where is God in the chaos? Yeah. And, so, and then you had Jesus shows up in the midst of this first century Roman empire yep. and, and, and continues to carry this, this Israel story and starts to flip the paradigm on its head a bit. This That's Hebrew prophet and, and all these stories that you see in Matthew Mark, Luke, and John, the, you know, these gospel writings are, are pointing back to the Torah, the Hebrew scriptures. And it's a, new, it's a new way of seeing God that's always been there. Maybe a Miyagi God with a little drum beat and a little bit of Joan of Arc. There's Joan of Arc. She has to come in with Jesus. Yeah. And Jesus does something at the very end on the cross. And he says, you know, uh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Then you have a bunch of theologians for the next hundreds and thousands of years now who have wrestled with what is the cross all about? Yep. And you, you seem to be, from what I've read, uh, not a fan of the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement, which if you're listening right now, that's cosmic child abuse. Sorry, that was bad. But it is. Yeah, th- yeah that was, that was, I shouldn't have said that. But you know, I'll say it in the book. I'll get in trouble. You, 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 I, don't, I forgot that you actually use those words in the book. Is that where it's, it's coming from? It's just, it's coming out of me now because yeah. I've meditated so much upon this book of life that now it's coming out of my mouth, stream of consciousness. And so, yeah, but yeah, this, this idea that, that God needed this sacrifice, this, this perfect lamb so that he can look at you and I and everybody else in a holy way. And we could be then grafted into this vine of Israel. Yeah. Okay? I've, I've always found it absurd. I have always found this idea absurd. Um, even, even when I tried my hardest to believe it. And the reason is that 
I keep saying, you know, I kept saying to myself, well, if God made up the rules, why didn't God just make up different rules whereby he didn't need some sort of insane sacrifice? Um, and actually, this is one of the biggest reasons that I think Miyagi is important. You see, Miyagi isn't like Jersey Shore. When we think of omnipotence, we think that God can do anything, make two plus two equal five, uh, I don't know, um, can like do 10 keg stands in a row uh, for Pete's sake. Uh, that's, that's big. Um, why, would he, why would he want to do that? Because, he's good. because he can. <laughs> but you get rid of this notion of all power. All well, power. yeah, omnipotence from a standpoint of uh, Miyagi simply means that um, God can do what God is. <laughs> so is God can only ever do the best. And so God is confronted in some ways, you could say. I, I'm very Eastern Orthodox, actually, in this, uh, in this sensibility. Somehow evil has lurched its way in, uh, leached its way into God's creation. And God can't merely destroy it. Otherwise, you won't be able to tell the distinction between God and that which has crept its way in, right? Because God is the God of life. God is the God of being, the act of existence who brings all things into being. And evil is the sort of, uh, it's, it's a leech that doesn't allow things to flourish, draws them into death, destruction, chaos, and violence. Um, God looks at this, if you will, in my setup of this and says, how am I going to get rid of this uh, violence that has crept its way into creation? You got the Noah story whereby God gives everything back over to that violence. I, and, you know, I, I think it's a helpful metaphor there. Um, but in Christ, you have God in some way saying, no, there's only one way to do it. If uh, I'm to defeat this violence, it has to be through nonviolence. So Christ becomes, you know, this is why I think Trinitarian theology is so important. Christ is God, and Christ, and as God, Christ enters death, not so as to destroy death, but as uh, Gregory Nazianzen blessedly says, perhaps to bless death. Re, uh, reissuing, if you will, a creative role for death that is not destructive and reissuing a creative role, if you will, that is not violent. And it becomes, if you will, the ground of love and the ground of loving. And the reason I say it is this, when we love one another, what we do is we under, we die to ourselves. That's one famous phrase. And I, but I mean it, you die to yourself in that you no longer are your own sense of identity. But rather, when I love my wife, my care for her is as important to me as anything that I would have desired prior to her. So there is a death of self such that in love, I become one with my wife. And I think this is the, I, I don't quite know what to do with it yet. I'm just playing with these ideas. But this becomes the now recreated role of death in creation. And it's really a matter of, uh, if you will, God's salvation working its way through creation and then through Christ. Now, there's one cool thing. So you talked about Rome. And I want to go back to Rome just really quickly before I get cut off here. Um, by you, by the way. Uh, here's, here's the utter nonviolence of Christ. We oftentimes take his statement that you should take up the cross or turn your cheek, go the extra mile. We take this as sort of a metaphor. Like, ah, I didn't mean it. Ah, yeah, I think we're full of crap when we say that. I, by the way, I can't do it. I'm, but I also admit I'm not Christ. Uh, the uh, 
Maybe he maybe he meant another cheek. I don't know. Yeah, maybe meant another cheek. Yeah. Next book. Next book. I'm plugging it now. It's called The Impossibility of Christian Ethics. It will deal precisely with this. Uh, but Christ, uh, Christ does in fact call us to this nonviolent life, um, and Christ Himself shows this by as the divine one, as the one who has been poured out into a human uh, person. He goes on to the cross in an utterly nonviolent way, telling Peter, for instance, in the Garden of Gethsemane to put his sword away. Peter wanted to start the revolution, get rid of Rome. Jesus said, yeah, that's not the way of the Messiah. That's not who the Messiah was meant to be. David? David at least admitted he was violent and he understood this, but he was wrong in all of that. And the Israelites, when they came in and committed divine genocide, yeah, that wasn't divine genocide. That was them justifying themselves, killing a bunch of people. Yeah, um, same, same reason why you know, David wasn't allowed to build the temple. He had, he had too much blood on his hands. Exactly. He cut off 100 Philistine foreskins for one dowry, for Pete's sake. Um, yeah. that, that's a lot of blood. Mm-hmm. Not that I'd know. Uh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Solomon was supposed to build the temple, right? Well, now you have a real reference to who builds the temple in and through Christ. Christ is the real builder of the temple, the son of David, who does what David in some ways couldn't do, wasn't able to do. And when he rebuilds the temple by driving the money changers out of it and taking control of it, what does he immediately do within the temple? It's one line in Matthew. He heals people, <laughs> right? I mean, it's such a poignant line because that's what the temple was always supposed to have been throughout its entire existence. But Christ takes this to the cross and he becomes on the cross a reflection of who we should be relative to one another and who we are instead relative to each other. We are the Romans. We are the, uh, we are the temple elite who put Christ to death for pragmatic reasons to prevent Rome from bombarding Jerusalem and killing everyone in it. Uh, we ought to be like Christ, the one who lives in self-sacrificial love to one's brother and sister. Um, but I, I do something crazy because I extend this. I say, if we're indeed a part of creation and we are, uh, and if the cross is a critique of violence, uh, in sort of human roles, I think it's gotta be a critique of the cosmic violence that we live in and breathe in as well. So Christ is, if you will, the one who comes to quell all violence. Yeah. So, uh, this, this then like reminds us as people who, if we, you know, you read the scriptures, we see uh, where, oh, death is your victory and where is your sting? It's, yeah. I, I feel like in a way, because uh, that's always the question where, yep. when, when there is violence and, and you make a reference to the never ending story and you have to read the book. If you, if you've heard of the never ending story, then you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, again, like Karate Kid, go watch the movie. Oh, but you do make this reference where uh, it, it's that question again of uh, if there's nothingness and there's darkness and there's, there's, there's abyss. And this goes back to the creation story, yeah, you know, does. and you have chaos and you have God's always creating in the chaos. Exactly. And the Jews have always talked about this being this tikkun olam, you know, restoring harmony, repairing order. And so we see this in the Christ who then you think he's going to do one thing on the cross right. and he decides to do the complete opposite of what you and I probably would do. You think he's going to beat Roman ass in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes to the yeah. cross instead as some sort of ultimate victory that should not be a victory. So you wrap right. You wrap this up with a little bit of a ransom Christus Victor theory of atonement. I really do. Not and by the way, can we talk about why that's right instead of uh, the other? Go for it. Okay, penal substitutionary theory. Who are you being saved from at the end of the day? God. God. That's it. God has arbitrarily defined sin. You're being saved from God and God's arbitrary wrath. 
welcome to Jersey Shore God. Um, what does the covenant language of the forgiveness of sins actually refer to? It refers always back to this notion of restoration because God is restoring a covenant and the sacrifice that cleanses in and through Christ is once again referring back to this language of restoration because when we cleanse, what we're doing is we're restoring, for instance, our armpits to the way that they should have been, which is not quite as smelly as they are now. Uh, so the cleansing sacrifice of Christ is indeed restoring us, but it's doing it not because the sacrifice is effective. It's doing it because of the ways that I think I'm talking about. Namely, it reveals who we actually are versus who we should be. And it is, uh, if you will, a restoration of human nature to, its, uh, to the movement of Trinitarian love. Okay, point made. Trinitarian love. Let's uh, let's end here. Let's talk about uh, our our role in this, uh, our participatory, co-creating, drum beat kind of a role. Now we get to kind of participate in this hippie god love. Yep. Yeah. Oh so, yeah. Oh yeah. The, sorry, yeah. that was a question. Yeah. No. Yeah, absolutely. So, so then I'm curious. So like, so Eric, <laughs> for you, what does that look like for you practically in your life right now? Because I think you're doing something that's pretty awesome that has come upon you, and yeah. now uh, I want you to tell everybody else what you're doing. Be hospitable. Uh, I'm dead serious about hospitality. Treat those who are not in your family like family when they show up on your doorstep. And treat your family like family, which I fail to do sometimes, right? I, I, can, uh, I, I suck at that. Um, be the signpost to the love that God brings us. I, I, you know, Maybe this is one of the biggest distinctions between me and process folks. I think we can do a certain amount. I don't think that we are co I don't think we are creating with God. I think that we are stewarding a salvation that God brings, but we, you know, that said we can steward well and we can become, if you will, lights and beacons unto this world uh, who do indeed abide by the God ordained notion of love for brother and sister. So, yeah. Go serve some people. Go serve some people. Not you, all of us. Yeah. So you, so you're cur- you're currently serving. You're serving people right now. You're you're putting on these camps. You're getting in touch with the environment. Oh yeah. Uh, tell us about that, and uh, and then we'll wrap it up. You got and then it. Everybody else is going to go to Amazon, and they're going to get Homebrew Christianity's Guide to God, everything you ever needed to know about the Almighty. Everything. Everything. Yeah, and you can learn more about all these crazy pictures that we were talking about. If you were lost at all, then you can go back to the book and then you can email Eric and have your own podcast. Ooh, you're also going to learn how to leave Buddhists alone in the book. Um, you know, I, I wanted, I wanted to bring that up tonight about leaving Buddhists alone. Yeah. But I decided we're not going to talk about that tonight. We've had the, our, our past, actually our past two podcasts have been on Buddhism. Oh, that's funny, uh, man. Yeah. That's yeah. One of my Buddhist friends was like, Hey, like we're, you know, hijacking the podcast. No, she didn't say that. Somebody else said that, you know, it's all fun. It's all whatever. But, <laughs> That's perfect. That's uh, awesome. We're, we're leaving the Buddhists out of this one. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> we're kidding, by the way. You got to read the book to understand why we're joking. That, we are. If, we if are. you just hear us right now, it sounds like we're a bunch of jackasses. Uh, yeah, that, that's probably 90% of my life, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so tell, tell us about the ministry that you're running right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I went into academia so that I wouldn't become a youth pastor. Um, and now I am a youth pastor one week out of the year, uh, for some God ordained Jersey Shore reason. Um, I am running a high school summer Institute, uh, called the St. Cattery Institute. No one knows how to say it, by the way. Uh, not me. Uh, what it is, is it's theology nerd camp 
dedicated to a theology of the environment. We are very much Catholic, but as I like to say, because we are Catholic, we are hospitable, we are open, and we want you to become a part of this. What we do is we have theology lectures in the morning, and we go out and we experience the beauty of God's creation in the afternoon. We apply the lessons that we learned in the morning in with our hikes or service in the afternoons. We will likely spend a night on a ranch, ranch stargazing. We'll spend then two days down in Yellowstone National Park, uh, directly experiencing one of the most beautiful parts of God's creation and one of the scariest parts, if I'm honest. Uh, that's a huge magma chamber just ready to erupt like a massive zit. So um, <laughs> they won't do it while we're there. Just say the right words. God will protect us. Uh, but the, the, it was an amazing first year last year. Uh, we had a blast. It's for high school students uh, entering sophomores through entering seniors. Um, we live out an affirmation of incarnation in this uh, institute by studying it, by studying nature and by taking God's be- the beauty of God's creation seriously. If you want more information, go to www.carroll.edu slash Kateri, K-A-T-E-R-I. I'm not going to repeat that. Uh, K-A-T-E-R-I. Did I get it right? You got it right. K-A-T-E-R-I. Okay. And what about you? So you're, you're not on Twitter, by the way. Dude, I suck it. I, I suck yeah. it. Tweeting. Like, I, don't have to- I, I was, was going to tell people, hey, follow Eric on Twitter, but I'm like, I can't even find you on Twitter. I, I think I'll go open my account right now. Oh, you have an account now. <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a Twitter account. I just have to, here, let me, let me see what my handle is. Um, and then you can tell people to follow me and maybe, maybe I will start some very clever tweets. I, I can, uh, you know, I'll be the first one to retweet your first tweet. Sweet. Okay. I, I'm in then. <laughs> uh, and, if, and if anybody has any questions, they can, can they email you or is that, that too personal? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. Email me. Yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to enter into dialogue about this. Look, my username is DFR Eric. So I'm assuming that's my Twitter handle too. What is it? D? D-F-R-E-R-I-C. Oh, are you next to the Pope here? Yeah, that's me next to the Pope. <laughs> that's good. I'm following you now. Oh, sweet, dude. Okay. Yeah. Oh. I'm back in. I'm in. You're going you're gonna to start getting some of the greatest <laughs> tweets you've ever read. Awesome. Awesome. God, I can't promise that. Well, thank, uh, thanks, Eric, for your time. And uh, yeah. if you're listening right now, and again, go to Amazon. Go to, uh, if, well, you know, Homebrew will get a kickback if you go through their site, yeah? That's true, yeah. Trip will be happy if we say go through Homebrew Christianity's site, go through Amazon that way, and he gets a penny. He gets a, he gets a yeah. penny for every, uh, for every Trip, book. Trip did edit the book, and I will say that he did a good job, but not as good as a job as you did writing it. So, great book, Eric, and I mean that. Um, you know, obviously, as a Protestant, when anytime I hear a Catholic guy, I get... Kind of, uh, you know, the suspicious, I don't know. But hey, um, right now I'm watching The Young Pope on HBO. And I'm... I heard it's intense. <laughs> it is intense. No, uh, that's not making me love Catholics more. But you, my friend, are. And uh, I, I do appreciate your work. So Thanks, brother. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, peace, man. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, I appreciate it all.